Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. In British Columbia, it's V-Day. The, v- the COVID-19 vaccine has arrived in British Columbia. It is an historic day in the fight against the pandemic in our province. The first shot of the vaccine scheduled to be administered in British Columbia today. Now, here's what's going on and what you can expect to roll out today. Premier John Horgan has a news conference at 12.30 today. Latest on the vaccine rollout plan in British Columbia. CKNW will bring you that live at 12.30 on the Jill Bennett Show. That'll be this afternoon. Then we are expecting the happy news that the first British Columbians have received the vaccine. That's expected later in the afternoon. Meanwhile, more vaccine on the way. The breaking news out of Ottawa at this hour. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just announced Canada will uh, receive up to 168,000 doses of the Moderna vaccine by the end of the month. Lots going on here on the vaccine front. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Dr. Timothy Caulfield. He's a professor of health law and science policy at the University of Alberta, author of The Vaccination Picture and, and other books. I'm really pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Caulfield, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, super exciting. For a guy like you, a vaccine guy, what is it like a day like this to see these, this vaccine being rolled out in our country and more vaccine on the way? Mike, this is, this is huge. This yeah. is moon landing <laughs> stuff. You know, I think yeah. that's how people should really think about about this scientific achievement you know i've you know i've, I've following vaccines it's a big part of my big part of my my job um and i didn't expect it to happen number one i didn't expect it to happen this fast right number two i didn't expect the efficacy to be this impressive hmm. uh number three super happy about the the safety data so far right and the other thing I think is really important to remember that these clinical trials were really impressive, you know, tens of thousands of people in both the Pfizer and the Moderna trials. So, you guys, this is impressive stuff. Yeah, it really is. How how do they pull this off? Like, how is this done so quickly? Like, a lot of vaccines will take years to develop, but these vaccines were developed uh, in a matter of, like, months and weeks. Well, I mean, that's, that's a really good, a really good question. More than months and weeks, you know, they've been, you know, they hit, first of all, they hit the ground running because this, um, RNA technology, um, has been in the works, right? This isn't like completely de novo approach to, to vaccines. Uh, secondly, huge international effort, very cooperative, you know, sharing data, people working together, uh, massive, you know, government support also. That's super relevant. Uh, and and we can't can't forget that you know the you know scientific community really stepped up right. We had you know thousands, probably tens of thousands of scientists around the world, you know, doing this. And you hear these stories of of these scientists uh, scientists up all night, you know, really just grinding it out to make this happen. But I think it's really important to highlight, and and we can come back to this. Um, it feels like it was rushed, right? I think that that's right. one of the things yeah. that's really leading to concerns. You know, the science is so solid. You know, a lot of my epidemiology colleagues who have, you know, poured over the data have been blown away by these clinical trials, how well they've been done uh, and, and, you know, how, and the numbers that they've gotten. So, you know, the research was done well. And the other thing to highlight 
is the regulatory process. You know, they're meeting these standards. It's not like they're saying, oh, we're going to let this through and that, that somehow there's some lower standard that's being met. They're meeting the, the regulatory standards, and, and these, this data is being reviewed by an independent body. So they, these aren't, in, you right. know, they're independent researchers looking at this data uh, and allowing these vaccines to go forward. Right. So even though everything was fast-tracked, and it's amazing, like there were no corners cut here in terms of safety. Uh, that, that's right. Now, yeah. I, I will put in a big caveat here, and I think yeah. it's important, um, is that even though these clinical trials were large, uh, and even though the safety data was, you know, pretty, really impressive, um, in other words, you know, they didn't see a lot of, you know, serious adverse effects. We can talk about the um, the allergies that they they had in the UK. Um, the, the that despite that, despite that, um, really rare serious adverse events may not pop up, even though there's tens of thousands of people involved in, the, in these trials. So, you know, we're going to get that more data really quickly as this rolls out, sort of the post-approval kind of surveillance, which happens all the time. A lot of the anti-vax community makes it sound like we don't have data on, on adverse effects. We do. We, you know, these surveys, vaccines all over the world are monitored very carefully. and We have really robust data on safety, and, and we're going to get more of that really quickly with these vaccines. Okay, speaking of anti-vax, like most people are ready and anxious to roll up their sleeves. They want to get the vaccine, but of course there's a minority that does not. Is that a problem in your mind? Like if a significant minority of Canadians decide not to get the vaccine, does that hold us back from achieving any kind of like herd immunity against the virus? It does. It's a big problem. And this is the space that we do our research in, right? Yeah, misinformation is having an impact on vaccination hesitancy. There's been a number of studies that have shown that. A study just came out of the UK that, you know, that found that. So the, spread it, the spreading of misinformation is having a real impact. Now, uh, in Canada, um, we're seeing an uptake in people saying that they will get the vaccine. That's awesome. You know, that's fantastic. And I think that's partly because of the impressive efficacy data and safety data, but I also think it's yeah. partly because of the improved science communication around this. You know, we are trying to answer people's questions about the vaccine, but still... Uh, there's a lot of hesitancy, depending on what study you look at, anywhere between 20 and 30 percent. Yeah, that, that's high number. But the other high number that you just mentioned, the efficacy of this vaccine, like when people hear that, wow, 94, 95 percent effective, does that go a long way in convincing people that might be hesitant or worried that, look, I'm going to get this? I mean, if it's 95 percent effective, sign me up. I think so. You know, I, I think it does. Um, if you look at the data, efficacy matters to people, um, and side effects matter to people, right? So you are getting this, this cohort of Canadians who are saying they're going to get it, but they're going to wait and see. And I think that that's a really important cohort to make sure we have good science communication for, right? Because those, those are the ones that could go perhaps one direction or the other. Um, and, and look, vac- vaccines are the single greatest achievement of biomedicine, you know, save millions of lives. That's true. It sounds yeah. like hyperbole, but it's true. Yeah. Save millions of lives every single year, but they only work if people get them. So we, you know, now we had good science, we had a good regulatory process. Now we need good science communication. We need good public engagement. Right. Okay. Let me ask you re- one question real quick, and then we'll take some phone calls here. But for people who uh, want to get the vaccine, but maybe there's some people in their in their own families who are hesitant or they're concerned. Like I've I've talked to lots of people. I'm sure you have as well. People who want to get the vaccine, but maybe a member of their family or a close friend does not want to get the vaccine. That's going to lead to some, you know, maybe some difficult conversations in families. What do you recommend to people? Like if people have got members of their family who are hesitant about the vaccine, and someone wants to try and you know talk them into it, what what do you recommend in that situation? 
Well, the good news is that there's evidence that debunking works, as I like to, <laughs> like to say. So, uh, I, I, you know, I would think you speak to them respectfully. You tell them yeah. that you understand their concerns, and you point them in, in the direction of entities that are aggregating the science in a responsible manner. Say, look, this is what the scientific community is saying about these vaccines. I, I invite you to look at independent uh, uh, sources. And, and you're often not going to change their minds. You know, how often someone go, you know what, Tim, you're right. I'm wrong. That never happens, right? What you want to do is you want to give them the opportunity to look at the information and hopefully, hopefully also not spread more disinformation. My guest is Dr. Tim Caulfield from the University of Alberta. Let's go to Isaac on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Isaac. Hi. Um, I'm wondering if uh, you can still catch and spread the disease after receiving both shots of the vaccine. Okay, Dr. Caulfield. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and right now, to be honest, it's going to be a surprising answer. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. So as you probably have heard, the, um, uh, the vaccine uh, causes people not to have symptoms anymore. Um, and that's, you know, that's fantastic. And, and, and I think the likelihood is that it's, it's going to result in stopping the spread also. But that's something that we need to know right very soon now that's important because that goes to herd immunity that goes to um how many people need to get vaccinated etc uh but uh it, it's i suspect you know looking at you know the history of vaccines and the way the vaccines normally work that that, that there's going to be good news on that front and we should know fairly soon after the re, uh the vaccines have rolled out look the, just the fact that they they have this impact on individuals and you know with no symptoms is really important because that has an impact on our healthcare system how come they weren't able to figure that out in the trials um that you know partly it has to do with uh, with timing um and also with the, the way that the trials are, are constructed but I, I think this is something that we're going to know very quickly right okay roger on the line in surrey hi roger Sorry, just a quick question. Uh, one thing I don't really understand, and you hear about this quite often, is when they say that unless a large part of the population takes the vaccine, that it's not going to be effective. But doesn't it protect you individually? If you as an individual take the vaccine, does that mean that you're protected? Is it just the hospitalization right. that we're concerned about? Dr. Caulfield. Yeah, you know, that's a great question, and, and it, it's an opportunity to talk about the the broader reason of why people really need to get vaccinated. So it does protect, it does protect you. And when, when you have something like, you know, this really high efficacy of 90, 95%, it really does serve to, to, to protect you also. They're not every, you know, all vaccines have a degree of, of wiggle room. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not all vaccines are hundred percent effective. Um, so, you, you know, there is a small chance that you can still get it, but it is protected. But more importantly, more importantly, the reason you get a vaccine, I think, is uh, for your community, for other people. Um, it's an altruistic act. I like to say that. And, and that's why when you think about something like the flu vaccine, where you, you get you'll, sometimes some years there'll be quite the, the low efficacy, you know, 50, 60 percent efficacy. Um, it's still important to get it because, you know, you're not getting it for yourself. You're, you're getting it for right. others. And the more people to get it, the less transmission you're, right. we're going to have. Elizabeth on the line in Kamloops. Hi. Uh, hi. Um, I'm a mom of an autistic child, and I am not an anti-vaxxer. I believe in vaccines because they save lives. And how do I convince other parents of autistic kids to go get this done when, you know, they've dug their heels in. And I do know a woman who, her son at a year old, got his vaccine, went totally 
nonverbal, non-responsive. And even with that, I still would go get my kids vaccinated. But how would I say to anybody else, you know, this really is important? And where would I find like a website specifically to find the medical information? Thanks, Elizabeth. Tim? Uh, that's a great question, Elizabeth, and, mm-hmm. and thank you so much, particularly speaking from, from your own experiences, which I think are, is really important. I'll tell you one way we, you do it is exactly what we just heard from Elizabeth, you know, telling personal stories from uh, speaking to particular communities. So she's someone in a community that has an experience and has knowledge about the topic. Her voice is going to be very powerful within that community. Uh, so, and research tells us that. So you want to have good science. You want to have a compelling narrative in which Elizabeth has, uh, and that can have an impact. Again, we're, we're talking about moving the needles. We're not going to change people's minds overnight, but, but her story, what she just did uh, yeah. on your show, I think is, is incredibly, incredibly important. There are great websites out. The Public Health Agency of Canada has good, good information. Um, World Health Organization has good uh, inf- information, and I bet uh, very soon, I haven't looked at the BC one recently, <laughs> but I bet you the BC one is also going to have good information uh, on, right. on these vaccines. So the, the, information, the information is out there. Now, if I, Mike, real quickly, if I could say something else, sure. when, when individuals have really dug their, their heels in, um, it's often very difficult to change their minds, you know, these really hardcore anti-vaxxers. So the World Health Organization always says when you're talking to those individuals, you know, don't waste your time trying to change their minds, right, because it's very hard to change the mind of the hardcore denier. But you can use your discussions with them as an opportunity to talk, talk to the general public. So the general public should always be viewed as your audience. Let's go to Debbie on the line in Powell River. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Uh, My question is, because in BC um, we haven't had the opportunity to take an antibody test, if we had, if that had been rolled out first, uh, if you have the antibody in your body, does that not mean that you don't need a vaccine? Um, Another great question, and I I want to emphasize also my area of expertise. I'm not an epidemiologist. I do know about this because I'm fortunate to work with with, uh, experts in this field. So uh, with that caveat, I'll answer your question. Um, So... It, you should still get vaccinated uh, because mm. the the literature around, you know, you'd think that we'd have this nailed down because we've been living with this pandemic for um, almost a year. But but the um, antibody response, we're still learning about it, right? And so uh, we don't know how long immunity is going to last. We actually don't uh, when it's natural immunity. So so the recommendations that is emerging is that you should still get get the vaccine, and it won't it won't hurt you if you've had COVID and you get the vaccine. So people are still recommending that that the, the general recommendation is that you should still get get vaccinated. Right. Good to know. Just got a minute left here. Larry on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Larry. Howdy. Hi. Go hey. ahead. Uh, yeah, sign me up. I want to be first in line for the vaccine. I, I lived during the time of polio, and uh, I just cannot understand how people can be anti-vaxxers. Uh, I guess you can't cure stupid, but for me, sign me up. Okay, Larry, thanks for the call. We just got 30 seconds left, Tim. I mean, there's just a lot of misinformation that just spreads so easily online. Which is your thoughts with 30 seconds left here? Um, sign me up, too. Um, yeah. <laughs> great science, great regulatory process. So, so far, um, the risk profile. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. 
Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Is great. Let's, let's get out there. Let's get vaccinated. But let's listen to the concerns, respond, um, yeah. respond in a respectful manner, um, and let's move forward. Canada now has the most diverse portfolio of any country for vaccines. We're in the right place to have access to safe, effective vaccines as soon as possible. Okay, that's Justin Trudeau. They're talking about the vaccines that have been locked up by Canada. Seven different types of vaccines, hundreds of millions of doses on the way to Canada under the various contracts that have been signed. Trudeau announcing this morning that the Moderna vaccine is on the way and will be here by the end of the month. All right, this is all great news uh, for Canadians, but what about the rest of the world? What about developing countries in the world? Are they going to get enough vaccine for their citizens? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Simi Dizit. She is the manager of humanitarian programs for Oxfam Canada. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Simi. Thank you for coming on. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot. So Canada is excited about the vaccines coming to our country. What about other countries and developing countries and poor countries around the world? How much vaccine are they going to get? I mean, that's a really interesting and complicated question. And yes, I acknowledge that today is a pretty big day um, for vaccine administration. Um, but the concern right now is that um, a, a majority of the uh, high-income countries seem to have bought up, I think, almost 54% of the available vaccines at the moment. Um, and there is an, a really interesting pooled procurement mechanism called COVAX, Um, that's been developed. It's an arm of the WHO that is trying to administer vaccines to lower and low to middle income countries. Um, However, under that mechanism right now, there are only enough vaccines to vaccinate one out of every 10 people in um, 67 of the lowest income countries in the world. So um, it's great for a lot of us sitting in, in our you know, privileged nations who are taking care of our needs. But I think in other regions, um, the arrival of the vaccine doesn't necessarily mark a change in um, the way the disease is being managed or the way people's lives are going to um, be affected by the vac- by uh, COVID-19 at this right. time. Right. When you take a look at Canada's vaccine procurement uh, plan, the plan was to get as many different sources of vaccines coming into Canada to make sure uh, Canadians are, are vaccinated. Every Canadian who wants a, a vaccine will get one. And it, it sure sounds like Trudeau, the Trudeau government has locked up a lot of vaccine here. Uh, potentially some of the, like, is Canada getting some of the most vaccine in the world on a per capita basis here? Uh, Canada is getting quite a lot of vaccines. Um, yeah. I think, you know, like every nation, um, leaders who have the funds and the resources available are really looking to take care of their own citizens and the people within their own borders first. And I think sure. Canada's done a very good job of that. So yes, we are we are per capita getting quite a lot of vaccines. However, not all of those vaccine candidates have um, received approval for their vaccines yet, right? So we may right. have bought all of those vaccines, but those have not all been um, gone through the trials and the testing as of yet. 
Right, right. And I guess what Canada has explained is that's why they locked up so many different types of vaccines, seven different types of vaccines, because we don't know when they will all be approved and how effective they will be. So that has been the strategy for Canada. But I know like Canada has taken some criticism on the in the international stage, right, from for for locking up so much vaccine here in, in Canada. Like I know, isn't it Amnesty International and some other groups have kind of criticized Canada somewhat over this? I think there has been some criticism, but I think the thing we need to remember is that Canada is also the second largest donor to um, pooled vaccine procurement mechanisms. So they are also trying to take efforts to uh, make sure there is a redistribution of vaccine to to lower income countries. But yeah, I mean, I think they have taken some heat over that. And I think the, the other thing to remember is that, um, you know, the other thing governments like Canada can and should be doing is to be advocating for um, for large pharmaceutical companies to be sharing their technological data, sorry, their technological information and their biological data and actually um, share the patents so vaccines can then be manufactured and distributed at a much lower cost so that people everywhere can access it, similar to what we saw with the... Um, HIV-AIDS treatments in the 90s. Right. For Canadians who are wondering about this, it was interesting yesterday in Ottawa that the federal government announced $485 million in global effort to to, in foreign aid to other to poor countries here. Uh, A lot of it will be to fight the coronavirus epidemic in in other countries. So I think that's a good thing. And Canada has also said that there will be an effort to share this vaccine. Like the the number of vaccines that Canada has procured here through these contracts are are probably enough to vaccinate Canadians five times over. So there may be extra vaccine here in Canada that Canada will be able to share with the rest of the world. Is that your understanding of of how this is going to work? That if Canada has ex, uh, extra vaccine, that that will be shared with poor countries. Um, to be honest, I, I can't speak to that because I'm not sure, but I do know that they are encouraging a narrative around making sure that there is distribution of vaccines globally. So, you know, if that is the case, if that's what they have officially been saying, then I, I wouldn't doubt it. Like they are using also a lot of their, you know, their their political leverage and their, their social capital to talk about the importance of making sure that the vaccine is accessible to people in in lower income countries, which I think is also really important. Because we like we forget, right, Mike? We forget that we're so we're so caught up in our day to day lives, and we're so impacted by how affected we all are by this, and rightly so. That we, it's so easy to forget that there are people whose governments aren't going to be able to access treatments or vaccines for them. There are people whose lives and you know economies and and um, realities aren't really going to change, even though there are vaccines out there. So it's. I think it's important to also encourage those narratives and have those like larger conversations so people can be like, hey, yeah. wait a second, what about other people? No, I agree with you. I think it's important to keep that in mind for sure. Like, I think the Trudeau government is going to get some high marks here for uh, the contracts that have been signed to secure these vaccines for Canadians. And I think the vast majority of Canadians would be pleased about that. But when you take a look at the spread of this virus around the world through Africa, through South Asia, India, a lot of these countries are poor developing countries in many cases, and they're in a very difficult position. So I'm just wondering, like, can people help out on that? Like, it is, what is Oxfam doing about that? Is there any way people can help with that? Well, Oxfam is part of a global coalition called the People's Vaccine, which is basically advocating for what we call a people's vaccine and not a profit vaccine. And that all stems in 
continuing to put pressure on pharmaceutical companies to release their patents so that they can be produced at low cost by generic companies. Um, so I think if people can also get on board with the people's vaccine and continue to you know, pressure their leaders municipally and also and making sure that that pressure sort of trickles upwards, that would be really helpful for leadership to start using their power to do that. Um, so I think that's probably the most substantive thing that people can do right now. Thank you for coming on today. Hey, it's been such a pleasure, and I hope that this was useful for your listeners, and I hope that you um, have a wonderful rest of your day. All right, welcome back to the show. It's V-Day in B.C. Frontline healthcare workers set to get the vaccine first, but what about other essential workers, teachers in line to receive the COVID-19 vaccine during phase two of the rollout plan? That will be next spring. But do you trust what's happening in schools Right now, we're seeing more exposures and breakouts at schools, leading to closures, including a Christian school in Surrey. Our show contributor, John Jang, now has more. Good morning, Mike. As we rumble ahead towards Christmas, that'll be a welcome time away from schools for parents, teachers, and students. As we've seen the number of COVID-19 exposures in schools actually increasing over the past number of days and weeks. And for more on that, we're now joined by Kathy Marlis. She is the creator and admin of the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook page with over 40,000 people following the page for all the latest on school exposures. And Kathy, it does seem like school exposure notices are being handed out at an increasing rate. Uh, I agree. It's it's been a rough few days. Um, it's been we can see the progression happening over the last couple of weeks, but it's it's hit uh, a big peak um, in the last two days where we recorded over 50 schools each day, and that, that's a lot. That was a lot of um, uh, messages to sift through and letters and, and lots of really concerned teachers and, and families. And what's more concerning than just the increasing number of school exposures is the fact that the notices being given to parents and families are starting to become more vague and in some cases are simply inconsistent with what really seems to be happening in certain schools. It's almost like there are extra hurdles for you to have to jump over just to decipher what is really happening. That's correct. It's become more and more uh, complicated and confusing, um, and we're leaning on those that send us the letters to kind of help us decipher. So, for example, we'll get letters that um, they'll get multiple. Sometimes the teacher will get one version of a letter, and the, the school community will get another one with very different details. So one will say there was two people who tested positive, or the, the other letter that went to the school community said there's only one. So do we post it as two separate exposure events or only one separate exposure event. Then we had another incident where the the public or the school community was told there was one and then the admin of that school sent out a letter that said actually four people in the school had positive tests and they were in the school. So that that to us says there's four separate exposure events. So it's a lot of sometimes it's guessing. Some of the letters they're stopping putting the school names on the letters themselves and Sometimes it's on a, a cover letter and it's been, then the name is not there. So it's, it's just become harder and it takes us longer. And uh, it's hard. It's hard. We're just, the winter break can't come soon enough. Now on that note, I have to imagine more and more parents want to see an extended Christmas break. At this point, though, it doesn't look like it's happening. Certain schools are making those choices independently, but the government has not confirmed an extended break here in B.C., uh, no, it hasn't been, uh, well, 
uh, they keep saying they're not going to extend the break. I know it's causing a lot of um, frustration and, uh, you know, there's a lot of emotion behind that. Um, I think there's there's two sides to to look at this issue. I think a lot of people feel burnt out. A lot of the teachers have expressed that they they need more time, that they've never, like they feel this way in December when they normally feel like at the end of the year, the exhaustion and the stress and the toll it's taking just to do the job daily is immense. It's it's an unusual stress load. Um, and for the students as well. I mean, they're, you know, even for my own family, it's, it's every day you go to school, it's, you know, did this, did this person cough? I think this person said they had a scratchy throat. Do I have COVID now, mom? Like there's this, I hear this from parents all the time, that the stress and the toll it's taking is immense. And I think, you know, for some they feel, you know, there, there are people that may gather, um, even though we're told not to over the break. I mean, we've seen this on Halloween and Thanksgiving and, and a variety of other holidays that well the numbers spike and, and are we sending our children back into um, a spike of cases and incidents at school? So just, they're just trying to play it safer, and there are other provinces who have acknowledged this and are doing this. I want to point out that on your Facebook page, you shared the fact that Alberta's Chief Medical Officer, Dina Hinshaw, actually shares school exposure notices and information when she meets with the media throughout the week. And this is something that Dr. Bonnie Henry hasn't done here in B.C. And when reporters ask about certain school exposures or situations, she doesn't always provide answers that are specific to what's really happening. Agreed. I did post that, and um, I, I saw that video of their the Alberta public health officer sharing those numbers, and I was just floored. Like, why why are we so different? Why does the British Columbia government feel we can't handle this information? Why does our public health officer feel we can't handle this information? I, I think it's our right during a pandemic to know the state of affairs in our schools so that parents can make informed choices. This is where people are getting frustrated and more um, irritated by the situation. It's quite obvious that there is a huge discrepancy on how BC is handling the situation. And I think, you know, if they could just share the information. I mean, uh, they sh- I shouldn't have to do what I'm doing. It shouldn't be two moms in BC that are tabulating and, and tracking all the schools in the province. If, if we can create a database and do this, I mean, the, the public health officer can share it. Very well said. She is Kathy Marlis. She is the creator and admin of the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook page. Kathy, again, uh, thank you for doing what it is that you do. It's really an unpaid full-time job, but as we like to say, transparency saves lives. So please never stop what you're doing. Oh, I really appreciate the support, John. We're, we're going to keep keep going at it as long as we need to. Okay, that was uh, our own John Jang in conversation with Kathy Marlis there. And John joins me now. Good job on that, John. And I follow this Facebook page. For anyone who's got kids in public school like I do, I think it's well worth keeping an eye on that Facebook page. They do a good job there. But I think she raised a good point right at the end of your interview. Why isn't the government doing this? Why isn't Bonnie Henry doing it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an excellent question, especially yeah. since we've heard Dr. Bonnie Henry and uh, government leaders talking about how impossible it is to actually gather all the information. Well, Kathy's been doing this basically for months now, so it's clearly yeah. not impossible. And the other question I would have is why uh, doesn't Dr. Bonnie Henry follow what Dr. Dina Hinshaw is doing in Alberta, sharing the school exposure notices during those press briefings? And instead, uh, reporters here in BC have to ask Dr. Bonnie Henry about school incidences. And even when they ask, the answers that they receive are not really really clear. They're very generalized. So it just seems like if you're sending the message that schools are safe, well, then why don't you share that information during those press briefings? Yeah, I mean, we can handle the truth, like the the old line from the movie. But uh, in the meantime, that Facebook page does a real good job in tracking COVID cases in schools. Thank you for that, John. You got it. Thank you, Mike. All right. That's John Jang. He's a contributor here on the show. So remember when the federal government brought out that COVID-19 alert app on your smartphone? There's been many months now uh, since Ottawa introduced that smartphone app that would alert you if you've come in close contact with someone who has tested positive for COVID-19. I remember when that app was introduced by the federal government, I thought, okay, I'm going to get this. I downloaded it and I've got it on my smartphone. It's been there on there ever since, but still doesn't work in BC. I just clicked on it a minute ago. When you click on it now on your phone, you get a note that says no reporting yet in your area. People in your province are not yet able to report a COVID-19 diagnosis through this app. So it doesn't work in British Columbia. Alberta is the same. doesn't work there either. Lots of other people in lots of other provinces, though, using this app. Should British Columbia get on board with this app? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Joyce Murray. She is the Federal Minister of Digital Government. She is the Liberal MP for Vancouver Quadra. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. Well, very happy to be on your show, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. It's nice for you, nice to have you on here. Let me ask you about this uh, this app right now. Can you explain mm-hmm. briefly um, how it works? So for people who are not familiar with, with the app right now, can you explain how it works? Uh, yes, it's uh, an easy-to-download app. It's an exposure notification app, not a contract case tracing app. And that's deliberate. It means we it does not collect any personal information or location. So it's got a very high degree of privacy built in. So what happens, how it works is if, uh, if two people who both have the app on their iPhones or their, um, their other phones uh, are within proximity to each other, in other words, closer than six feet apart, for 15 minutes or more, their phones will exchange a Bluetooth signal and those signals will be stored on their phones uh, for a period of time. If one of the people should test positive for COVID, uh, they will be provided with a one-time key by their health authority of participating provinces. And when they download that key into their phone, anyone that they were uh, in proximity to for that period will be alerted that they may have been exposed to COVID-19 and, and will give them uh, some messages as to what to do next. So that's right, how it right, works. Right. And it's an important way to have early notification that you may have been exposed. Right. Okay. And as you mentioned, privacy is a critical component of this app and the way it works. So it does not collect your name, your address, your location, your, your contacts, none of that is collected it would simply inform you if you've been uh, in close proximity to someone who has tested positive and it's all done kind uh, anonymously what do you think about 
uh, that British Columbia is not using this app. I mean, here you are, you're a BC MP, you're the minister uh, responsible here, but we're not being, you're not allowed, you can't use it in BC. What do you think of that? Well, firstly, I would say it's a real missed opportunity for British Columbians to uh, reduce infections and deaths, actually, um, because, Mike, there was research done by teams from Oxford University and Stanford University um, based on a variety of situations in three counties in uh, Washington state. Uh, their conclusion is that, that the uh, COVID alert app is works at any level of uptake. And in fact, if 15% of the public is using it, their model predicts that that that, that jurisdiction would be avoiding infections and deaths at a rate of between 6 to 8%. And 15% is already what the rest of Canada, the rate at which it's been uh, uh, put into people's phones. So they are, according to this model with top researchers, they are reducing infections and deaths. And I just would love to see British Columbians also have uh, the opportunity to be using this. Okay, very interesting. My guest is Joyce Murray. She is the Federal Minister of Digital Government, talking about that federal COVID alert app on your on your smartphone. Minister, let me play this here for you. This is uh, BC's public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and of course she's been asked frequently, why doesn't BC get on board with this app? Here she is explaining why British Columbia does not use this app. We're not preventing people from downloading it. You certainly can. What we're not doing is as uh, public health having codes um, because right now it, it's leading to more. Um, there's, we have concerns about the potential for increasing work without benefit. Um, we are continuing to talk with the federal government about uh, their app and the uh, changes that we would like to see. We're also talking with Alberta and the Yukon about modifying the Alberta app um, to make it more aligned with what we would like to see. So it, it is another tool. Um, unfortunately, um, my the advice that we got from, from people on the ground here in BC is that they didn't feel it was a tool that would be helpful for us right now. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry there. Yeah. And the system that, of course, British Columbia is using is, is physical contact tracing. So if someone tests positive, we have contact tracers who try to trace their whereabouts, where they've been, who they may have come in contact with. Yeah. And I guess British Columbia just thinks that's more effective than an, an anonymous an anonymous app. But w what do you think well, about her concerns? Well, Mike, firstly, let me say that this is not a replacement for contact tracing, which is extremely important. It adds... Uh, another tool in the toolbox. And I know that in BC, our contact tracing system is overwhelmed. And yeah, so having yeah. another tool that ex that notifies people early is extremely important here in British Columbia. I question whether some of the decisions uh, by the regional health authorities to not utilize COVID alert were made when we had bent the curve and had very low uh, exposures happening last last uh, late spring and summer. That is simply not the case right now. We could use additional tools. Uh, I think it's urgent that we do. But let me go back to uh, Bonnie uh, Henry, Dr. Henry, for whom I have the greatest respect, uh, her commentary yeah. uh, that this would overload, create extra work for no benefit. She asked for two things. One is that it ties into contact tracing 
And, uh, and we simply can't do that because contact tracing is predicated on collecting and using personal information. And COVID alert is predicated on not doing that so people can have utter confidence and privacy. So we cannot satisfy that request at all. Her second request, however, um, to, was to really narrow the window of potential um, exposure. And we have made a change to the app that does exactly that. So she was concerned that the notification go, covers 14 days. And there's probably four or five that were the most risky days for exposure to that person who uh, you received the notification from. So we have made the change where the person who is test positive can now input the date they first got symptoms or the date they received a positive test. And that really does narrow the window and reduces the concern that more people will be notified of exposure uh, that whose risk was very, very low and it really narrows it to people who have that real risk of the maximum possibility of exposure. Okay, that's very interesting. On the privacy concern element, and this is something that's been a priority, as you've outlined here for the federal government, they want to protect personal privacy. Given the fact that we're in a public health emergency, this is an unprecedented pandemic, a lot of people have died across the country, um, is there an argument for making making some concessions on the privacy side in order to better prevent the spread of this virus. So in other words, we do collect some private information on the app if you can ensure assure people that the the, the private their information will be protected, it will not be it will, it will be safeguarded. Is that a reasonable discussion to have that maybe we should have a little less privacy in order to have more safety from this virus? Well, Mike, that is, that's a very interesting question. I would say that contact tracing is the place where privacy is not the primary concern. And contact tracing is a very important tool as well. As we know, it's the primary tool. COVID alert is an additional tool, and it is built based on the exchange of Bluetooth signals. It is built to ensure utter privacy because we really want people to feel confident that they can put it on their phones without being concerned about their personal data being used for any unintended purposes. So the more, the higher the privacy, the greater the number of people that will feel confident in using it and the greater effectiveness it has in essentially preventing uh, infections and deaths um, by people being notified before they go and, uh, you know, possibly visit the, the elderly family member in the care home. Uh, instead, they go and get a test. So, no, I don't think at this point it would make sense to change the app. We already do have contact tracing that is uh, uses people's information to try and track them down. Okay, last question for you, Minister. You've, you've made the case for British Columbia getting on board with this federal app. Uh, British Columbia is not using it right now. Alberta is also a notable exception, not signed on to the app. What about the other provinces across Canada in your experience? Are they, has it, would you say the app has been successful in other provinces? Like, are, are people happy to have it? Absolutely, it's been successful. I mean, firstly, more than, or over five and a half million Canadians have downloaded it. 
over 8,000 people have input, voluntarily inputted their one-time key, which meant they tested positive and alerted anyone that was carrying the app in proximity to them that they may, may have been uh, infected. Eight, over 8,000 people. So right. um, it is, uh, it, it is uh, a tool that works. We, as an app, there are always upgrades, and we have done several upgrades based on what users or health authorities have asked us to do. So we'll continue to make it uh, better and more responsive. But it is working. British Columbians should download it now, Mike, in my view, as you have, yep. because there are people from out of province that come here. And every other province besides BC and Alberta, as well as um, one of the territories, is working with this app. Let's be ready when BC government agrees to sign on. And so please encourage, uh, I'd like to encourage everyone listening to da- that can to download the app. I can tell you early alert, there's an exciting uh, breaking news, which is that Apple is making some changes to COVID alert or to their foundation that will make it usable for some of the older iPhones like iPhone 6. So a larger number of people will be able to download it and be ready for when the BC uh, Public Health uh, um, Office and the government are ready to participate. Okay, it's a fascinating issue for sure. Minister, thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you for highlighting this, Mike. It's very important. It's a life-saving issue, and so I appreciate your interest. 2020 quickly winding down. Everyone will be glad to see the end of this year, but the scams targeting the public, they are not going away. In fact, they are continuing to increase now more than ever. British Columbians need to watch out for any scams and ripoffs out there aimed at swiping their cash and stealing their personal information. The Better Business Bureau does a great job in tracking these scams, and they've just put out their naughty list for this Christmas, the 12 scams of Christmas to watch out for this year. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Carla Laird, the manager of community and public relations at the Better Business Bureau. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hiya, Carla. Hey, thanks for having me, and hello to your listeners. Thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, this is a great list you've got here, so let's let's just go through these here. Let's talk number one on your list here, e-cards. Yeah. Okay, what are these e-cards? Yeah, e-cards are really electronic um, cards. So basically, at Christmas time, you would have typically typically gotten your physical cards with with your greetings for the year, for, for the season, from your friends and your colleagues. But most people are trying to move towards electronic versions because of COVID-19. You're trying to reduce the spread by reducing the number of physical items being sent around different places. And so with that, scammers are capitalizing on that opportunity by sending people fake cards or, or those phishing cards so they yeah. seem to be legitimate e- e-cards, but at the same time, if you click on them, they're downloading malware or they ask you to pay money to open it to see what's inside. And so that's how they're going to benefit, either through money or information. Okay, so people might think like, oh, this is a nice little Christmas card I've got from my friend, but it's not. It's a scam. So how do people, how do you know if it's a real, a real legitimate Christmas card you're getting in, in your email uh, or it's a scam? Is there a way to tell the difference? Yeah, actually. So based on the reports we've been getting from members of the public so far across the province, 
many of them said that there was an attachment included in the scam ones that had the ending exe. So the, yeah. typically with different files that you download or that are attached to a doc or to an email that's sent to you, you might see .pdf, so you know it's a PDF document, or .jpg, so you know it's an image. If you see exe, we're re- recommending you that you avoid clicking on that because it contains a virus and some form of malware that could yeah. end up giving someone unauthorized access to your device. Okay, social media gift exchanges. How does this one work? Oh, this one is the bane of my existence. It comes every single year, and it comes in so many different ways. So for 2020, we're seeing where they're telling people things like, hey, you know, it's 2020. If there's ever a time to get a, a lovely gift or surprise gift in the mail, this is the year for it. And so they're playing on your emotions to want something good happening for the season, especially since we're all being forced to hunker down for the holidays. And so with that being said, you might get an invitation on social media saying that, you know, you want to participate in this gift exchange. All you have to do is spend $10. It could be you purchasing a cheap $10 gift or sending wine to a random stranger to surprise them. Or in some instances, more recently, where you submit your e-transfer email, you drop it into this list. Your name is randomly selected and someone is going to send you money as a way of them paying it forward. And there are even instances where you're, participating in a secret Santa dog where you're spending money for a gift for a secret dog. And we don't even know if the dog exists. There's no information a dog? about that at all. Yeah, dogs. So, so they're playing on every single thing that could possibly <laughs> trigger an, 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 an opportunity or a desire to participate. Oh, no. This is like you see a cute puppy on your in an email. I think like, oh, yeah, I want to give a nice toy, Christmas toy to a secret exactly. dog. Oh, yeah. these Playing scammers. Oh, my goodness. These scammers. They, how low will they go? Okay. <laughs> Holiday apps, uh, you know, this is an interesting one because if you go on the Apple App Store, there's lots of sort of holiday-themed apps and Christmas apps, and kids can talk to Santa on some app or something. Uh, these are Some of these are scams too? Yeah, some of these are actually scams. And the main reason why the, the scammers would try to capitalize on this opportunity is because if you think about it, under normal circumstances, you'd be at the mall right now or at a holiday theme park with your kids, getting them to interact with Santa, and you can't do that this year. And so with that restriction, you're now trying to get an app that would give you an opportunity to do that. And so they're creating apps that have similar functions or look like they have similar functions. But when you download the app, you could be downloading malware. Or if you are trying to you know, enter in information to start accessing and utilizing the app, you're sending all that detail to scammers and not actually to, um, to actually access and utilize this thing for your family. Okay, that, that's a tricky one. How do you know? Like, you just, just avoid using these apps at all? Or? No, not necessarily. I would okay. say be wary of the ones that are free because those are the ones that tend to most likely be used by scammers. Um, and at the same time, if you are going to download an app, you typically would get some information that explains what their privacy policy is, and especially those that are made for kids. They're going to be explaining to you the content. They're going to be explaining to you the kind of information they're going to require from you as the guardian or the parent, as well as from the child. And if you're not seeing anything like that, no privacy policy, nothing that gives you information, avoid downloading that app altogether. Okay. My guest is Carla Laird from the Better Business Bureau, and we're talking about the 12 scams of Christmas. And as we continue to go down the list here, Carla, okay, this is one that I got just the other day alerts about compromised accounts. I got this in my email just a couple of days ago. 
and it said your Netflix account had been suspended or something, or we need you to update your info. I knew it was a scam right away. These are very common, right? Yes, yes, they are. And they're becoming more common now because of the fact that you're getting emails from so many different places in this last couple of weeks in the year. And we've been seeing it. You're getting from PayPal. You're getting from Amazon. You're getting from Netflix. You just made a purchase. So your bank is letting you know that you just made a purchase. And so in the flood of emails coming in, scammers will send phishing emails, just random bulk emails, sneaking something in that looks legitimate. So you'll see probably the Netflix big red N that looks very common. It's distinguished. You see it, you automatically think Netflix. And maybe because you see that, you're not processing that, hey, this could be a fraudulent email. You end up clicking a link and submitting information, thinking you're really speaking to Netflix when you're just giving details to a scammer. Yeah, they're getting a little bit more sophisticated. Like, I think a lot of these are easy to spot, but I've noticed that some of them are getting a little slicker. You know, you, you click on them, you look at them, and you think, like, it looks real. I mean, you could, I kind of know, I mean, most people don't get fooled by this stuff, but a small number of people do. But they are starting to become a looking a little bit more realistic, would you say? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And in some of these um, compromised email alerts, they are using um, more sophisticated language. So typically in the past, you would say, hey, look out for bad grammar and, and typos and misspellings. Right. But they're copying the exact information that you would typically get from that company so, or from their website and, and using it and copying it and pasting it in those emails. So the language sounds professional. It looks professional. It looks sophisticated. And so it gets much di- more difficult for you to identify the real from the fake. Let's take a few phone calls here. Bev and Langley. Hi, Bev. Hi. Um, I would like to know how these scammers get access to your email. You know, you go to a store to buy something and they say, oh, what's your email address? I was in one store and they told me I couldn't have my receipt till I provided an email. Another store told me I couldn't take advantage of the sale price till I gave them my email, so I just made something fake up. But how are these scammers getting access to your email? Okay, good question. Carla, do you know? Well, yeah, it really does depend on several factors. It could be a case where you've downloaded an app before and then based on the, the details in the sign-up part for the app, there's something about your sharing your email with third parties. And so that's one aspect. It could be something you signed up for outside of you know, social media or some form of registration. And it could be from stores as well because that's the issue when you share your email address, you're not sure where it ends up or who it goes to and how it's being utilized. And I think that's part of the the mindset consumers need to have, especially in the new year. We need to be more sensitive about our information and not be afraid to challenge whoever is requesting the information and ask why and how is it going to be stored? You have that right. Okay, what would be your what would be the Better Business Bureau's advice on that? Like if someone says, okay, you, you know, you go into a store, they ask you for your email, should you decline to give it or I guess an individual choice there? It is an individual choice and I've been hearing more about that specific situation where consumers are being asked to share their email address or if they can't get a receipt and it does make things a little complicated because at the same time you you do need a receipt for tax purposes for accounting purposes and so if you're being restricted in the ability to get your receipt, it creates some issues. And so businesses, while you're probably trying to reduce high-touch items, you also need to think about how consumers are going to be affected and their their right to privacy, because it could go into privacy complications or privacy issues. 
Okay, keep phoning me on this. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Dave in Surrey. Hi, Dave. Hi. Hi there. Good morning. Hi. Go ahead. Yeah, no, the reason I phoned in is our Visa, MasterCard, no, not MasterCard, Visa, we get it yeah. calls, uh, I guess, maybe every couple of weeks from Ontario. It's usually around 7.38 in the morning. Your your uh, Visa card has been used very early this morning for some pretty expensive purchases, and, and then I just hang up. I just... But I do get them quite often. Is there so any- this is like v- Visa trying to pretend that they're alerting you that your card's been compromised. Is that well, what it I, is? I, what I always related to is I think somebody wants me to give them a bunch of information, and they're going to sure. nail me with something. Okay, Carla, what about that? Like, I actually had this happen to me once. My, I saw some a bunch of charges showed up on my credit card statement in, like, you know, it was in some, in, a, in like the Middle East. I mean, people yeah, had gone on a shopping spree. I was like, "What?" And I phoned. Uh, <laughs> I got in touch with Visa right away. And you know what? To to the credit of Visa, they uh, canceled all those charges right away. They knew it was they knew it was a scam. But I mean, what would like? Have you ever heard of that one? People get calls and say, "What your your Visa card's been compromised?" Yes. Um, so there are instances where your card may be compromised, maybe because of where it was utilized, or for some reason you, the numbers got into the wrong hands, and. When that does happen, the, the card, your card issuer, so in this case probably Visa, would probably reach out to you to let you know that there's possibility that your, inf- your information has been compromised. And so they probably would need to reissue a new card. And, some, and the beauty of using your credit card, and this is why we always recommend using credit cards as the, the form of payment for online purchases, def especially, is that if there is proof of fraud, and in your case you said you were refunded the amount, the, the bank, once they do their investigations, they will refund the amount to you once they can. Sh- once it is clear that you did not make those purchases, you said you were you weren't even in the Middle East, so yeah, it made it even easier for them to verify that. Right. Yeah. No. It was it was pretty obvious, I guess, that it was a scam. But I, you know what, I thought Visa. I was kind of impressed with the way Visa handled that. You know, it was the, uh, there was a lot of money got rung up on my card. And, yeah. you know, they were able to rectify it pretty quickly. Uh, I got a question here from a listener off. Uh, doesn't want to go on, on the air, Carla. And the listener asked, can a store refuse to give you a receipt like if you don't give them an email? So let's say you purchase something from a store. They ask you for your email address. You don't want to give them the email address. Can they refuse to give you a receipt for your purchase? So that's where we're still actually doing investigations on that because we've checked through all the statutes and we haven't really been able. I think that's where one of the issues we have legally where you can't see clear cut that you are or are not allowed to issue receipts. And so that's where one of those gray areas in the law. So you are supposed to get receipts and the CRA recommends that you get receipts from businesses when you do transactions to help you with your your with balancing your accounts and doing your taxes. And so that's where the issue lies. So it's still an open debate, if I'm going to be honest. And so as mm. soon as I can confirm it, Mike, I promise I will come back and speak to you and your audience about it. Okay, let's squeeze in another call here. Alex on the line in Chilliwack. Hi, Alex. Oh, hey. Uh, I've had that uh, automated call from the CRA once in a while. Oh, I, yeah. I hear that robotic voice. I'm like, click, block. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the old automated call from the CRA, Carla. Yes, these will continue to happen, and we expect that in the new year, as we approach tax season, especially with CERB and so many other different 
benefits that we've been receiving and people trying to figure out what they owe the government versus what they don't. It's going to be a very complicated year, and we anticipate scammers are going to try and take advantage of that, especially because people aren't 100% sure of what's going to be happening or what they need to do. And so verifying before you making any payments is going to be key. And of course, remember, the CRA doesn't take payments in gift cards, Bitcoin, or over the phone. So if you are being asked to make payments in that way, you know without any doubt that that's a scam. Okay, Carla, it's always great to have you on here. If people are looking for more information on these scams, you guys got a great website, right? Where can they go to get more information on that? Yeah, you can visit our website at bbb.org. You'll find all the details there. And if you do come across a scam, go to our website or you can click on Scam Tracker. Share that information with us so that we can keep everyone else in our province safe. Carla, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You bet. Thank you. That is Carla Laird. She is the Manager of Community and Public Relations at the Better Business Bureau. So let's talk about British Columbia's move to no-fault auto insurance. Now, that is coming next year. What an abrupt flip-flop this was by the NDP. They had earlier been opposed to no-fault. They're going for it now. No-fault auto insurance coming to British Columbia next year. Now, the government is saying you will save money because of this. And yesterday... Uh, the government announced that ICBC will now apply for an ICBC rate cut to the BC Utilities Commission. 15% rate cut on your basic auto insurance. If you get the optional insurance, too, from ICBC, you could be looking at a 20% rate cut. Have a listen to this now. Here's the minister responsible, Mike Farnworth, yesterday. ICBC set to apply to the BC Utilities Commission for the largest decrease to basic insurance rates in more than 40 years. With its approval, starting May 1st, drivers will begin seeing savings of 20% or about $400 on their basic and optional vehicle insurance as a result of ICBC's new enhanced care coverage. All right, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth speaking yesterday about ICBC rate cut of 20%, up to 20%, could just save you 400 bucks on average on your auto insurance. Now, people got to love that, right? Like, come on, you're going to cut my insurance? This is awesome. But what about the move to no fault, though? What if you're injured in an auto accident? Will you still be able to sue for your injuries? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Michael Mulligan. He's a lawyer with Mulligan Defense Lawyers in Victoria, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, great oh. to be here. Okay, this is a real interesting issue here. What do you think about your thoughts, your analysis here on this announcement yesterday on this proposed ICBC rate cut? Well, I guess I would say everyone likes to get uh, cheaper things or money back. Those are, uh, of course, uh, politically popular things to announce. Uh, it actually it causes me to harken back to 1986 and Bill Vanderzam uh, offering people lower beer prices if you voted for him. Um, so there's some clear attraction to that. Uh, but People need to look at this uh, critically and realize that, like with most things in life, uh, you get what you pay for. Uh, and uh, so uh, when you pay less uh, for this form of auto insurance, uh, you are getting less auto insurance. Um, and one of the things that uh, you need to reflect upon uh, is uh, how is it uh, that you could draw $400 out of a uh, burning dumpster, which is how ICBC was, uh, has been uh, described. Uh, and uh, the answer to that, uh, I think, uh, in large part, uh, lies in how uh, insurance uh, coverage would be uh, provided. 
the one of the reasons, or the substantial reasons, why ICBC was described as a financial dumpster fire um, is because of uh, actuarial predictions concerning uh, the cost of paying out uh, future claims. Like if somebody's hurt, you need to set aside money to be able to pay for their care in the future, for example. And in the system that we have uh, had in British Columbia, which has involved determining who's in fact responsible for an accident, uh, rather than just uh, not caring about that and, and treating people who caused the accident the same as somebody who was the innocent person who was hurt, um, is that when there was a compensation provided to somebody, they would in fact be provided uh, a lump sum of money ordinarily to pay for their future needs and their injury and so forth. Right. Under the new model, uh, that won't happen. And what you will wind up uh, being if you are so unfortunate as to be hurt in a car accident uh, is that you will be treated in a similar way uh, that you're treated now if you're injured and have a, a workers' compensation board or a WorkSafe BC claim, right. um, which will mean things like you will not be able to sue the person who crashed into you and hurt you. Right. Uh, you will not receive uh, a lump sum of money to compensate you for uh, your losses so that you could then plan your own affairs, uh, and you will have no option to go to an independent judge to have decisions of ICBC uh, reviewed. Uh, instead, uh, you will be subject to being treated by ICBC in any way, uh, essentially, they wish. Uh, and you will, instead of receiving a, a lump sum of money to compensate you for your loss and lost wages and injury and so on, uh, you will instead be uh, doled out uh, amounts of money per month by ICBC, uh, and you won't have any meaningful way to challenge that. Well, couldn't uh, you could you not appeal it though? Like I believe the government has said there will be some sort of an appeal process, though, right? Like if you, if you were offered, if you were say, okay, let's say you're injured in a car crash, you got whiplash. Uh, they look at the schedule of injuries and say you're entitled to this amount of money, and the government says they're dramatically increasing the amount of money that will be available to people who are injured. That's why they're calling it an enhanced care system <laughs> instead of uh, what it really is, really kind of a no-fault system. They don't like that They don't like that name. It's called enhanced care is this new insurance system. So let's say you don't like the amount of money that you're being given. Do you not have an opportunity to go to a tribunal or something and appeal it? Your appeal mechanism, and I'll come back to that uh, doublespeak language of enhanced care in a moment, yeah. uh, but one of the other fundamental changes is that up until uh, this system uh, was uh, suggested, if you had a disagreement with ICBC and it couldn't be resolved, ultimately your remedy would be to go before an independent judge, and the judge would decide what you were properly due. What the government has suggested here um, is that your only mechanism would be to go to this thing called a civil resolution tribunal. Right. Uh, and the problem with the civil resolution tribunal is that the people who are on the civil resolution tribunal are not independent of the government. Uh, they hold their job on short-term contracts of a couple of years, uh, unlike a, a judge who isn't beholden to one side of the dispute or the other, uh, if the government doesn't like how uh, some uh, member of the civil resolution tribunal is deciding things, they just don't renew their contract. Uh, and so you need to ask yourself, uh, if you wind up in a dispute with ICBC, do you want a circumstance where the government employee, effectively, a person on a short-term contract, gets to be the final arbiter of that decision? You need to ask yourself questions like, do you think uh, ICBC has a reputation of treating people fairly? Are you prepared to abide by whatever decision they make and not have an independent uh, review available to you? Do you think it's fair that 
a person who would be deciding a dispute uh, would be employed by one of the people you're having the dispute with. Or you need to ask yourself, what has your experience or your friend's experience been like uh, when they've uh, made a claim uh, with WorkSafe BC or what used to be the Workers' Compensation Board? Did you think that went swimmingly and was fair? Do you want your life to be uh, organized by uh, a government uh, uh, agency like that? Because that's really uh, what is uh, you're going to have available to you in the unfortunate event that you were injured. You are okay. going to be effectively beholden to ICBC. Okay, speaking of Michael Mulligan, he's a Victoria lawyer. We're talking about uh, BC's move to no-fault auto insurance. That is coming next year. The government yesterday announced they will save money uh, from this move, so it'll mean an average decrease in your ICBC insurance premium of $400 a year, which is is pretty attractive to most drivers, I I would suggest to you. Um, They call it, one of the reasons I guess they don't call this a pure no-fault system, Michael, is that there will be some cases where, if you're injured in a in a car accident, you will be allowed to go to court and sue, and that in inca- that includes cases involving criminal conduct, right? So, like, let's say you are hit by a drunk driver and you are injured, you'll still be allowed to sue, correct? Uh, in that particular example, that is correct. Yeah. Uh, however, that is going to be the the rare exception, and I must say that language, the enhanced care coverage language, is uh, quite remarkable. Double speak. Uh, you'll see in press releases, uh, they'll suggest that the amount of money available for care has somehow increased. Uh, that is right. completely misleading. What they are referring to there is that under our current model, there is some money available for even the person who causes the accident, right? Regardless of who caused it, they're still going to provide basic, basic medical and other care for the dangerous person who crashed into you. We have that now. That is the figure that is increasing, and what they have taken away uh, is the right to sue the dangerous person who has crashed into you. Uh, there is no limit the amount of money you could sue for if some dangerous person crashes into you, uh, and so that language of enhanced care coverage is just uh, such complete uh, double speak. Uh, it's uh, hard to imagine. Well, Nothing has been enhanced. Uh, they have taken away uh, your ability to well, they've increased independent remedy. Well, they've increased the maximum payouts, though, right? I guess that's what they mean by enhance, that the maximum amount pool of money available is dramatically increased up to, you know, millions of dollars. But that would be in the rare case. You wouldn't, you know, you're not going to get the maximum amount, but you could potentially get get more. Isn't that what they're saying? They may be implying that, but it's false. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how else to make that any clearer. What they have increased is the amount that we have in our current model uh, an amount of money, we have a money that can be provided to pay for the care of even the irresponsible person who crashed into you. Okay. That amount has been increased, right, for everyone, the irresponsible person that crashed into you and you have both got a larger amount that would be available regardless of who caused the accident. But what they've taken away is the right of the person who is the innocent person who is hurt to sue the other person, except right. in very narrow circumstances. Okay, my guest is Michael Mulligan. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Rhonda on the line in Langley. Hi, Rhonda. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, yeah, my question is, in the new no-fault system that's coming in, is ICBC, let's say I get uh, rear-ended and get whiplashed, and I'm off work for two weeks. Is ICBC going to cover my medical appointments, massage and chiropractor, whatever, plus my lost wages, but I don't get a lottery payout because of pain and suffering? (laughs) Well, well, let's see what Michael thinks of that. Michael? Well, uh, that'll be basically up to them. Uh, The uh, concept would be 
uh, yes, they would pay for medical uh, and uh, lost wages. Right. Uh, if you have a dispute about uh, what those costs would be or how much wages uh, you lost or how long you uh, are unable to work, uh, the trouble is you're going to have a very limited capacity to uh, challenge that. Your mechanism will be to a uh, non-independent uh, tribunal. Um, I can tell you what I would suggest, and I, I must say, I don't do ICBC plaintiff side work. I don't have a financial interest in this, but I see people who are involved in this system frequently in my work. I can tell you what I've got in place and what you might want to consider, which would be obtaining private disability insurance. If you don't want to be beholden mm. to a government insurance company, you might well want to consider getting your own private uh, disability insurance so that you're not completely beholden to, uh, to uh, ICBC uh, in the event that you are uh, seriously injured. Okay, let's go to some more calls here. Uh, Glenn and Penticton. Hi, Glenn. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, before I throw my scenario out there, I want to know that I'm not an anti-ICBC person. I think a uh, well-run company could be a benefit to the province. But anyway, this no-fault insurance is, uh, is crazy. Um, scenario. I'm 40 years old. I've got two kids. One in uh, primary school, teenage school or high school. We've decided as a family that my wife is going to stay home and raise the kids. I'm an entrepreneur. I earn about $250,000 per year. I'm going through an intersection, controlled intersection. I have the right of way. I'm hit by a texter. The texter is in the wrong. Uh, also, uh, um, what, whatever the, the term is used these days, distracted driving. It's me. I am paralyzed. Uh, for the rest of my life, I can no longer do my job. Uh, how am I treated in a no-fault insurance scenario? Okay, thanks for that example. Sure. Michael, would that fall into that uh, category of uh, someone injured in a, in a, in a criminal matter that, and you would still be allowed to sue? Distracted driving? No. A distracted oh. driving is not a criminal charge. You'd be treated the same way as the texter if the texter was injured in the same way. The concept would be you'd be provided nothing to compensate you for the impact on your uh, life and enjoyment by uh, having uh, being injured in such a serious fashion. Well, hang on though. If you're if you're paralyzed for life, I mean, you're you're obviously going to get a major payout from ICBC, are you not? No, you, you would receive monthly payments to compensate you for what your lost wages were, uh, and you would receive payment for your medical expenses. That's about it. And if you have a dispute about those things, you're, you would have no capacity to go to an independent judge. You'd be stuck with a civil resolution tribunal. So best of luck to you. Uh, the other way in which the system can work uh, what's proposed real injustice to people is that the uh, future payments for lost wages would not would be based on what you're currently earning. So let's imagine, for example, a student in the first year of university who's working a part-time job at Starbucks. Uh, and you wind up being injured in a way that prevents you from working for the rest of your life. The analysis is going to be, what were you making at Starbucks? And let's uh, project that forward. Our current model, you would have a judge determining what your uh, likely uh, future lost wages would actually be, taking into account things like you know the education you were pursuing, future uh, career, and so forth. And so you can easily imagine other circumstances. The caller mentioned being an entrepreneur, Let's imagine you're an entrepreneur who's uh, starting out in business, but your income is modest because you're just getting going. Um, if you wind up in the unfortunate circumstance where you're injured and unable to work in the future, there's not going to be some effort to project okay. how things have been going. You'll continue to make what you were making. Michael, I wish we had more time because we have more callers, but we'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on.